You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. As we move into the fourth quarter of 2021, we have to address some key investment questions. And to do that with me is Philip Saunders, co-head of Multi-Asset at 91 in London. And off air, Philip, we've had some conversations about inflation, about the US Federal Reserve, uh, what the last three quarters, almost three quarters, have delivered to markets. And it has been a fascinating year, probably not quite as fascinating as 2020, but fascinating Nonetheless, and I have to start with the U.S. Federal Reserve, the world's largest reserve bank. Is the Fed behind the curve? Yeah, well, I think that this is, um, you know, to some extent, you know, you've seen markets or particularly the U.S. market has sort of continued to party. You know, earnings have been very strong and, you know, it's basically risen with very no real correction now for, you know, since since COVID. And it's interesting recently that uh, you've had expectations of a slight economic weakness. And that in other circumstances would be bad news. But but more recently, it's been good news because it implies the Fed doesn't have to hurry. The Fed's not behind the curve and the Fed can basically take its time to normalize policy, which clearly has to happen at some point. Because the problem is that as soon as you actually go into a tightening mode, you know, markets tend to derate. Not necessarily. They might correct. The consolidation might be a consolidate correction in time. But by and large, you know, when the tightening process happens, then that does actually change the dynamic. And so in a way, if you want to continue to party, you, you want to put this off as much as possible so you can enjoy that party. Now, the problem is, is that the Fed basically is stuck there uh, in emergency setting mode in terms of QE, 120 billion dollars a month. And with interest rates obviously nailed to the nailed to the ground, and it's been in that position in order to avoid to backstop markets uh, as COVID hit. But since then, we've had a V-shaped recovery in industrial production. Economies have eventually sort of started to uh, recover, and they've recovered really pretty meaningful. Um, the, you know, the U.S. economy is now larger than it was pre-COVID. Uh, you can't quite say the same about that for the UK. You can say it for Germany and so forth. So in the way, we've seen an extraordinary recovery and we've seen a sort of liquidity driven bull market, at least in sort of Western developed markets. But at some point we've got to, you know, if you if they don't normalize policy, uh, then, you know, there is a risk that things run too hot. Uh, that you get a more meaningful return to inflation, and then they really have to jam on the anchors, jam on jam on the brakes, which we know if they have to act re- abruptly like that because they're really behind the curve, then that can have a very painful impact on markets. So what you're so, saying so, is, uh, just sorry to interrupt you, but what you're saying is that there is a threat that the transitory description of inflation might actually suddenly not be transitory and might become meaningful and people suddenly or rather the fed suddenly says wait a second we are behind the curve so we have to do something quite dramatic and that would be disastrous for markets in my opinion i think i don't think that's going to happen but a lot of people a lot of the conspiracy theorists are suggesting that it might yeah so i think that it's not necessarily that black and white because you know if they're way behind the curve uh, and then they they recognize they have to catch up because inflation expectations are becoming unanchored uh which is the expression people use uh then then that would be extremely painful but they remember you know in the in the previous cycle you know they've uh, they tried to normalize policy and that had sort of a particularly neg- negative impact on on markets 
and and indeed economic growth. So this time the dynamics, you know, that to, to some extent, I think that they are they think that uh, they can allow inflation to surprise a bit on on the upside, and they know what to do about that. Um, uh, what they don't want uh, is for the opposite to happen, for us to move back into a sort of deflationary type scenario. Uh, and so that's why they've been a bit tentative about it. But there was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal, which is a sort of Fed mouthpiece, if you like. And they've indicated that they really are going to start tapering in November. Yes. Really quite specific. Uh, and uh, that the tapering process will end sometime next summer. And that will clear the way for actually raising official rates from emergency levels. And in the meantime, actually, inflation has been, you know, showing signs of not being quite as transitory as the Fed's rhetoric would have us believe and yes. other central banks' rhetoric. So I think we've got a we've, we've got a period of uncertainty ahead of us you know, where we've got to work out how far central banks are behind the curve because they clearly are behind the curve and what the sort of catch-up process is going to look like. And as you go through that, it would not be a surprise to, um, you know, I don't think you have a recession, you know, which is, you know, the, the normal ingredient for a full-on bear market, but you're certainly going to be in a corrective environment and that might be in time, but you might actually see, you know, as as happened in 2018, you know, the S&P was off over 18, I think 18.9% at one point in a correction, you know, I painfully close to the 20% that typically signals, you know, a, a bear market. I remember that distinctly. In fact, the S&P 500 was just below or the futures were just below 2200 at one point in March 2020. Doesn't seem that long ago, actually. Okay, what worries me, Philip, before we go on to China, is that uh, people that are not used to the potential of rising interest rates or tapering, uh, suddenly wake up one morning and say, wait a second, the money that I was usually given as a primary dealer has suddenly shrunk a little bit and therefore I don't have the money to invest in the uh, risky asset classes that I've been doing so for the, for the last few years for the investment bank that I work for. Let's move on to China yeah. now. That was just my little ramble. What are the consequences of China's diverging policy stance is one of the questions you sent me. They seem to be, the Chinese that is, to be fixing the roof while the sun is shining, i.e. a global upswing, which means tolerating lower growth. But what will it take for them to blink? I'm slightly confused by that statement stroke question. Please explain. OK, let me try and try and explain what I'm talking about. So if you look at the Chinese credit cycle, they did uh, stimulate their economy in order to offset COVID effects, although much less aggressively than, you know, for example, the ECB did or the Fed did. But they were quite quick to start to turn off the taps again. And so therefore, you know, China, if you look back to the global financial crisis, you've seen a whole series of mini cycles as they've stimulated growth and then they've they, they've tried to sort of, you know, actually damp things down again. Uh, and that's had a, quite a profound impact on global equity market behavior. So China has become a much more important constituent in the global economy, as we all know. Uh, and people, although people tend to focus on Fed policy, actually, you should be looking at um, uh, the People's Bank of China's monetary policies um, and stance as well. So what's been going on this time, it seems, is that because you've seen a whole series of policy announcements that, that have caused a certain amount of trauma in 
markets, certainly Asian markets, yes. uh, particularly with the internet stocks, which uh, stirred even George Soros to write an article uh, about uh, how badly behaved they were in terms of changing the rules of the game uh, because he was long uh, the Chinese internet stocks, presumably, which subsequently weakened sharply. But what the Chinese, I believe, are doing is they are using this opportunity of a global upswing to address some of the challenges uh, that have been festering in the background. So we talk about the China's five pivots, uh, and I'll just reel these off because I think that it's relevant. Please do. Uh, so the five, the five pivots are curbing financial risks, i.e. dealing with the property bubble, which is serious in, in the residential sector. Um, the dual circulation, pivot to national security and self-sufficiency. This is a response to America's ending of the Chimerica um, relationship. A pivot to anti-monopoly and regulation, which has impacted the Internet stocks. Yes. Uh, a pivot to environmental imperatives, i.e. joining the net zero party. And then finally, uh, common prosperity, which is a pivot to income and wealth redistribution. So there's a lot on the agenda to get done that involves pretty significant changes. Uh, and and it's much better to actually bite those bullets uh, when things are OK, uh, because it's much more difficult to do that when you're in a sort of weaker period of economic growth globally. Uh, so they've been getting on doing that. And that's not been great for Chinese equities, which have been weak this year. Uh, and, you know, obviously the financial tightening has um, uh, has had a negative impact as well. And what this results in is an environment of decoupling because they're now beginning to ease policy gradually at a time when the Fed is about to tighten policy. Yeah. OK, so you you're going to hear a lot about decoupling over the next few months, I suspect. And um, what this means is that presumably the renminbi will soften. Uh, Chinese growth data will come in way below uh, consensus expectations as the prior tightening sort of bites. Uh, and um, and people are obviously confused about what this, you know, the changes to the rules in the game in terms of regulation, anti-monopoly type stuff and wealth redistribution actually means. So you've got a, quite a lot of uncertainty uh, that, that needs to be resolved. But the important thing to note is that, you know, A, China's done its tightening and it's not going to loosen enough to offset uh, the Fed's tightening and the ECB's tightening. Uh, and so therefore we're in for a, um, a sort of a, a choppier period. Uh, again, and it reinforces the point I was making about the Fed being behind the curve. So, you know, and this foreshadows the movement to a more multipolar world, i.e. China dominated region. Last bit of the jigsaw was Afghanistan in that, arguably, um, and the sort of more US dominated uh, side of things. Um, and you're seeing this divergence. Um, you know, so you saw US equities continuing to rally at a time when Chinese equities were weak. Um, and, uh, and so increasingly you're seeing China pursuing, you know, an independent course, a more independent course. Yes, indeed. Well, that begs the question now that uh, given the fact that Chinese and Southeast Asian 
Equity markets have underperformed US and European equities, and given the willingness to curb, or the Chinese will, willingness to curb rising asset prices, is it too, is it too early to start looking at these, uh, these dips in China and Asia as a buying opportunity? Should we stand aside? Because I know a lot of people will say, I'm in Tencent and I like Tencent and Tencent's a great company, but on the other hand, regulatory changes, which seem to change every, every few weeks, that sort of thing puts me off, so I'm going to stand aside. What's your attitude at 91 in London? Well, I think that this uh, confusion, well, there are two things going on. There's the likes of George Soros, who's declaring China to be uninvestable, okay? Uh, and so you're seeing basically a, a retreat of U.S. investors from, you know, particularly the, um, the, the, the big Chinese Internet stocks that have ADR-type listings, listings in the U.S., and that means that that group of companies that were flying high uh, up until February of this year have really suffered. They've really derated in a very significant way. If you stand back and look at the rest of uh, the Chinese equity market, it's probably trading not unlike other equity markets. It's probably still trading in expensive territory. But the subset of the likes of Tencent and Alibaba and so forth, you know, on a medium to longer term basis, you know, look pretty cheap. That's not to say they can't get cheaper. Uh, but as a longer term investor who believes that China, you know, remains investable and that these are extremely uh, well run and excellent and well positioned companies, uh, then, you know, maybe you will be able to get them cheaper. Um, but uh, over the medium term, I mean, look at Tencent. I mean, you know, from, from its cash flow alone, using relatively conservative assumptions, you know, it could buy, buy itself back in seven years at current levels, current rating, ratings. That puts it, uh, into, it, that puts it into perspective, I must say. Yes. So I think that clearly if the U.S. market moves into a sort of corrective mode, you know, that is going to cause further investor de-risking. Uh, I think that certain sectors within the Chinese equity market are probably going to prove quite resilient to that, you know, which would be a great sign that they'd found an appropriate uh, uh, level, you know, whereby you've got loose holders having been sort of cleared out of them. Uh, and, you know, really, you've got to take advantage of that as a longer term investor uh, to buy high quality assets uh, like, you know, like Tencent. Now, clearly, you're not going to have total clarity. But the point I would really make is that, um, you know, this idea that, um, you know, sort of China's had its little capitalist phase and, you know, it's now, you know, now going back to being a sort of full on command economy. That's not correct. Um, so if you're a farmer and you have a goose that lays golden eggs, you know, you're not going to kill it and eat it, are you? Uh, and, and I think that uh, China understands, the Chinese authorities understand the importance of private enterprise and the private sector uh, because they're undertaking these five pivots. You know, and the property market alone probably is going to take up most of their bandwidth over the next sort of couple of years. Uh, and so the idea that they're going to basically make life incredibly difficult for entrepreneurs in China, I think is misconceived. It's a sort of post facto rationalization of the weakness that we've seen in the kind of assets that Western investors have been long of. OK, so China is not leaning more towards socialism stroke communism, in your opinion. They're just uh, behaving prudently. We didn't say that. I'm putting words in your mouth there. But we, we understand your point. And uh, talking about China... 
commodity prices are inextricably linked with China and so important for countries like uh, South Africa. 91 in Cape Town looks at commodity prices every single, every single day, I'm sure because of the impact on the South African rand and the South African economy, but everywhere else as well. Commodities have suddenly become incredibly important, and we've seen some of them coming off. The oil price hasn't come off so much, but most other commodities have started to come off, whether it be lumber or iron ore or not so much lithium, but, you know, a, a basket of commodities have shown some signs of strain. In your view, Philip, have they peaked as a as a basket? So I think that the, you know it's quite difficult to generalise. Um, you know, absent you know an inflationary regime that causes all commodities to rise together, um, and I think the dynamics behind the oil price, you know, is somewhat different to the dynamics behind things like iron ore, etc. Um, but um, and I would say that, that, um, that over the medium term, if we're, if, if we're going to basically spend $5 trillion a year uh, sort of getting the energy transition done for as far as the eye can see, uh, then this is going to be quite supportive for tr- traditional commodities. Uh, and, and so uh, on a medium term basis, that is, um, you know, because you need a, a lot of traditional commodities to actually build a wind turbine, for example, Yes or build lots of them. Yes. Um, so, however, I think, uh, you know, this liquidity-driven sort of bull phase, you know, has uh, you know, lifted commodity prices up to levels that are probably unsustainable. And we've seen, obviously, the most dramatic correction, or one of the most dramatic corrections in the lumber price, which seemed to be sort of, you know, going to the moon, and then basically has come all the way back again. And, you know, actually, if you look at the longer term, I think somebody said recently that... Uh, you know, actually, lumber prices haven't really gone up on a sustained basis since Noah. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, so, so I think that uh, commodity prices have generally got ahead of themselves. We're in a corrective environment. I think quite a lot depends on the weakness uh, in the Chinese construction sector. Um, and uh, and uh, that, you know, it's clearly... You know, this is a challenge that Chinese authorities have uh, because some of the companies, some of the bigger companies in that sector clearly have awful balance sheets. Uh, and, you know, you know, once prices don't go up forever, you know, you, you end up in a corrective environment. And that's, uh, you know, the, you know, that's that's financially becomes pretty challenging. And it does mean there's a lot of uncertainty in the property se- sector. You know, wh- where is the price? Uh, and so, therefore, um, you know, construction activity can take, fall away quite dramatically. And that's 50 percent of the demand for world's iron ore internationally, isn't it, from ch- coming out of China, not just for residential, but also for commercial yes. and infrastructure and so forth. So I, I think that's that's somewhat challenging. So I think we're in a corrective environment on the industrial metal side of things. Um, but I think there is a flaw because there is a sort of an underlying uptrend. But things have got out of whack. And the best cure for high prices is high prices, you know, because what that tends to do, it tends to spur on supply. And, you know, when everybody's talking about, you know, cost discipline, (laughs) you have uh, the sort of weaker players who suddenly profitable companies spending a lot on expanding capacity to produce more stuff. So, 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 So that process is going on, not just in the industrial metals and so forth, 
but also in things like semiconductors, you know, where the capex at the moment is just massive. Uh, so eventually, semiconductor prices are going to decline dramatically. So that, I think, you know, is, is the context. So I think that uh, getting carried away with commodity prices at this level, you know, is, is probably not a wise thing to do. But the longer term trend might still be fine. Uh, oil prices are interesting because, you know, ultimately, I think solar kills oil prices. Uh, but that's going to take time to work out. And in the meantime, you know, the... Uh, uh, the the, the uh, throttling of capital investment in the oil sector, you know, is uh, is having an effect, uh, and that basically means that supply, you know, the demand could well outstrip supply, uh, and you're already seeing consumers having to pay higher prices for natural gas in in Europe and elsewhere, uh, and so that could prove to be somewhat stickier. So I think that the normal increase in supply that is engendered by high prices, you know, may not apply this time because of the environmental focus uh, in many, you know, across the financial sector now. Yeah, it's a split decision on the commodities. I mean, I'm looking at my basket in front of me now, the CRB index basket. Coal has just flashed up on my screen. It's up 120.5% year to date at $177.50 per tonne. So lots going on there. Philip, thanks so much for your extended analysis. That's Philip Saunders, co-head of Multi-Asset at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.